Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Thursday, March 24th, 2022. We have a very special guest today, um, someone that I'm sure you guys are all very familiar with. We certainly talk about a lot of his scoops, a lot of his coverage of Apple, everything they're working on. Um, I'd like to introduce you to Mark Gurman. Mark, do you want to say hello? Hello, hello. Thank you, Brian and Chris, for uh, having me. Really appreciate it. Obviously, big fan of uh, tech name and the pod in general. So glad to be here. Well, I, you know, I, I let me say this. I, I'm going to hazard a guess that you're the most quoted person on the pod. Although um, <laughs> maybe Dar Obasanjo, uh, he always has tweets that get in there four or five times a week. But uh, in terms of actual story, uh, Mark, you're probably number one by far. Um, well, very happy to be here. <laughs> and yeah, thank great you for all the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, let's lead off with this real quick, because you posted this after I posted the show today. So can we talk about your scoop today, since I didn't get to, which is, uh, I guess we're a step closer to (laughs) the vaunted uh, Apple Prime subscription service. Um, What can you... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. We're definitely a step closer... You know, Google launched a thing called the Pixel Pass. I think it was last year where basically it incorporates some of their services, tech support, uh, what else? The, the Pixel phone price itself, right? But nobody really uses it because <laughs> very few people comparatively are buying Pixel phones, mm-hmm. right? But I think subscription hardware for Apple is going to be huge. Obviously, we know where the industry is heading. We've seen this with uh, Apple. And software and online services uh, already for for months or sorry years. That's been a long day. <laughs> you know, instead of paying for apps outright, you're paying monthly, and so we're going to start seeing that trend significantly for hardware as well. Now, the iPhone would be the most significant product to date in the tech world to be sort of part of that package. Uh, obviously, you know, car leases, right? Mm-hmm. Car lease is yep. the ultimate you know, monthly subscription service. You pay till you're done with the car. When you're done with the car, you give it back. You turn it in right? and get another one. Yeah, turn it in and get another one. Similar with the uh, with this Apple plan, right? Every time a new iPhone comes out, you're able to swap out your current device for the next model. So that's basically what Apple's going to do here. I believe it's possible they'll attach it to the Apple One bundles, TV Plus, iCloud Storage, you name it. And then they'll do the same for Apple Care as well. So it should be a pretty interesting bundle. I don't know. Me personally, I don't love paying for stuff on a monthly basis. Uh, but I guess, you know, this could be interesting depending on the pricing. I, I traditionally like to buy the iPhone outright. When the new one comes out, I sell it and then use that money towards the next one. And sort Well, of, you know, there, there's, so. there's, there's two parts of that that I'm curious about, which is number one, yeah, it, it does occur to me that as much as you know, the sticker shock of paying a thousand dollars for a phone hasn't necessarily turned people off. But the other thing is, is that the economics of this for Apple in the sense that like, so if, if I'm paying whatever, let's, let's call it $70 a month and I I get to get a new phone every year. um, I'm assuming that that means the economics of you turning in your old phone so that Apple can resell it. It, 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 the the math maths out for them on that? I think so, but it's also not going to be $70 a year. I would say it's probably going to be half of that, right? 
keep in mind how much money Apple's going to make off this and how much they're going to make off this a year now, right? How many more people are going to buy iPhones? How many more iPhones they're able to resell in other markets, right? They're going to make a ton more money because of this, right? And they're also going to be seeing people buying the phones through them directly, probably instead of the carrier installment plans because of this. So I think it's going to be a huge revenue driver for Apple, depending on how they position it. So, you know, you saw how the market reacted to this, right? You saw the stock went up, I think, almost 2% on this news because investors have already done the math and the calculus to know that this is going to generate more and, money. And, 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 but that's kind of what I'm asking. Is the math of that... This sort of guarantees Apple has, which they already kind of have have done, this guarantees that Apple can just serve the lower end of the market because every time I trade in my phone from this year, Apple's going to resell it for $400 to somebody next year. Is, is, that, is that what the math means? Well, there's that, but it also means there's going to be more recurring revenue, right? Like you and I buy, might buy a new iPhone every year. But most people probably don't buy a new iPhone, you know, for every until you know three years or four years or five years go by, right? So it's almost that it's almost that um, subscription business of even if you don't go to the gym every month, you're still paying, and they're sort of counting. Yeah, but that's 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 not really quite right because everyone is going to the Apple Gym, quote unquote, in the sense that they are using their phone every day. So it seems like the calculus is actually more about getting the device in people's hands for longer at a lower sort of price point. You look at like a firm and services like that, that have sprung up that allow a lot more people to buy, you know, more things kind of in an ongoing fashion, you are renting access. And so that access then comes with the ability to do in-app purchases or other types of layered on subscriptions, whether it's TV or movies or other things that are a la carte that derive more value once you have that rundle going and you, you know, the device is like the leader in that space, right? So rather than having a high price point that prevents people from actually getting the device, keeping the device and more importantly, upgrading. So to the latest stuff that is going to drive a lot of the experiences, uh, since, uh, since I'm already reality, in for 40 right? a month, then yeah. I'm, I'm in for other things. Well, you, you just don't think about it. It's just sort of like, actually, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, the thing that's, that also, Mark, you, you, um, wrote about was, uh, one of the iPhone SE's hidden features, which is the ability, I guess, to bypass the signup process for your, um, what is it? Your carrier, right? Um, and this is going to be, I guess, rolling out, as you said, in iPhone 14. Now, this raises a question as to what you're paying for on a regular basis to live your digital life and to what degree the carriers are actually important or essential to that as we move more towards ultra wideband. And, you know, I just, I've been trying to think about this find my network and what Apple is doing with air tags. And I think I probably have this wrong, but if we, you know, think long enough, this goes into my conspiracy theory a little bit, you know, to a world where one, you have augmented reality and, Apple Glass or goggles or whatever you might have it, and you no longer need the telcos because you're using ultra wideband or 5G or there's just you know to your, to the story that you had last weekend about Apple Wi-Fi. Um, I just wonder if Apple wants to disrupt all of those relationships and all of those recurring revenue subscriptions with just the Apple One or the Apple Prime or the Ultra Fusion Fusion whatever you know Pro, and that that's where this ultimately could go by lowering the cost to getting the device, which is the lead to all the Apple universe. That's quite the conspiracy thing. I want to just thank you calming me here, but I want to. I want to go back to sure. you know why this makes sense for Apple first, and I'll talk about 
you know, your uh, area. <laughs> My wild ideas. <laughs> so, okay. So let's say the average person updates their iPhone every three years. Yeah. Okay. What does that mean for how much Apple makes off that one customer every three years? So let's say the iPhone, let's say $1,000. So let's say I upgrade every three years. Apple makes $1,000 off me every three years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, let's say the subscription plan costs $40 a month for that $1,000 phone. Okay? Yeah, so right so, there, they're making more. 40 times 12 times 3 is $1,440. Yeah. So, there you go. Yeah. Benefit for me, over those three years, I got three new iPhones. Yeah. Versus one. The benefit for Apple, they just made an extra $440 off of me. Yeah. And I'm able to subscribe to newer services and buy more apps and generate even more revenue. So this is why they're doing it. And this is probably the math they've done internally, right? $40 gives them a uh, 40% extra amount of money every three years per customer. So this is an absolute no-brainer. And I literally figured this out in five seconds using the calculator <laughs> and spotlight. on the okay, So that's, that's why they're doing it. Now, in terms of your theories, I think your theories are outlandish. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Please don't, don't pull any punches. Yes, I don't think those are the whole, I don't think, I think, but I do think it's the ultimate goal. I just don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, right? Mm-hmm. Like they yeah. really want to do their own satellite internet based service. There's been internal discussions about their own MVNO, mm-hmm. um, yeah. white labeling carriers. I don't see it happening anytime mm-hmm. soon. I mean, don't forget they're two years away or a year away or two years away probably from launching their own modems, right? To connect the existing mm-hmm. cellular networks. Yeah. So they didn't put in, you know, billions of dollars and five years of engineering work on a modem just to throw it away. Right. So, well, but how does this actually factor into, let's say the car, right? If you're going to have an Apple car, you're going to need a network, you know, to connect to, I mean, the, the Tesla that, you know, I drive is always on, it's always connected. It's, you know, got a 5g thing. Like that is part of the universe that I live in. I mean, it seems like networking is going to be a big part of Apple's future regardless. And so I guess I'm just trying to also think through and sort of set you up to talk a little bit about the Apple Wi-Fi um, piece that you wrote about. Yeah. I mean, I would say like the Apple car would probably connect the cellular networks in the same fashion as a Tesla, right? Mm-hmm. And the Tesla is completely white labeled. Like, I don't think you know which carrier your no. car is connected right. to, right? That's right. Um, by the way, they're still stuck on 4G, no? On uh, it, That may be Tesla. true. That may be true. I mean, I, I don't curious. really know the difference. It's it's fine. Oh, it, I, it doesn't really save it. No, I'm, just, no, no, I'm just asking personally. Yeah. Like, when do they upgrade to 5G, right? I remember the whole joke with Tesla early on is I was missing all these features and whatever, and they would tell you in the showroom, mm-hmm. oh, software update, software update, it's going to come in a software update. Well, I don't think you can move to from 4G to 5G no. in a software update. Yeah, so. no, that's true. Recently, look out there. Um, what was your question? <laughs> I mean, my, so one of the things that you wrote uh, about that got a lot of traction was about the airport extreme and Apple getting out of the Wi-Fi business. You know, now that Apple is, oh, has yeah. gotten back into I, the studio display and making displays, your point was, well, why don't we just go back a few more years and bring back a, a, a great Wi-Fi hub? Yeah, they should for sure just make some, you know, classic mesh networks uh, stuff to sell, right? They can make tons of money off it. Yep. It's very high margin. We know Apple overprices everything. So yep. it's an easy way for them to you know, generate some more money. Uh, I'd probably buy it. I'm looking for a new mesh network. Uh, I have an old airport extreme uh, at one place. And then I have the Nest mesh network at another. It'd be nice to replace both with the, uh, with, the air, with some sort of airport mesh network. Obviously the, you know, the Google Nest is fine, 
it works well. I've never had an issue with it, but it's not as well integrated with the iPhone. I don't see Apple pulling out anything sort of fancy or any Wi-Fi tech we haven't seen before. Mm. It would basically probably operate the same way as a Nest, but with the Apple brand, you would use the airport utility app, which I think is still pretty good. So I'd be shocked if they did anything fancy there. Maybe there's some interesting stuff they can do with the near field communication uh, with the, you know, the ultra wideband and all the other wireless technologies they have there. Maybe they would use like an in-house wireless processor for that too. So, you know, there are some interesting wrinkles there, but in terms of end user functionality, I don't think they would be reinventing the wheel here. Yeah, but at the same time, like, I mean, one of the things that I got to imagine that Apple really wants to get rid of is Bluetooth. You know, it causes so many problems. You know, it is what they're using, you know, to enable um, their their headphones, the AirPods and things like that. But it feels like one, it's not super efficient from a battery perspective. And then in terms of the types of, you know, fast user switching and connecting, it works, but not all the time. And I would think that part of like, and Apple increasingly is showing more home-based uh, functionality, you know, home OS type stuff where the, the home pod, you know, by its name, you'd think is the device that they wanted to centralize the home around. And yet that hasn't materialized. They, they seem to really miss on that product. So I don't know if the Wi-Fi device would be the device for it, but certainly something that allows you to have that mesh network that connects to everything. It's very efficient. It's fast. It connects to iCloud. You know, you can do home automation and shortcuts and that type of stuff that just, you know, a lot of the Wi-Fi devices just don't, offer they don't contemplate they're not part of the apple ecosystem i mean it, it does feel like there is maybe an opportunity there yeah first of all the home pod is a joke of a device yeah. and, and they completely failed there is in they basically have failed in every facet of the home and it's uh pretty much unbelievable I mean, yeah, like why is that right i mean it feels like so it, it, like they clearly, you know, they're, they're good at computers, they're good at phones, but when it comes to home devices, is it just that they're, they're like too high end, they miss the market. They're trying to be too market's fancy. Not by big, too- yeah. Market's not big enough for them to really mm. care that much about it. Mm. Um, I think that the sweet place to put the airport or put the airport would be inside of a home pod mini yeah. and actually make that device. Uh, that's what I would useful. expect. Yeah. That's what I would expect too. So, I definitely think they should look at something in that direction, right? If they ultimately do this. I mean, I haven't heard specifically. There were some rumors floating around a couple of years ago that they were going to get back to routers, mm. but I hadn't heard anything since then. And I didn't really think those were terribly reputable. That's why I didn't say anything. But the monitor got me thinking about that, right? Like if they're going to go back to making, you know, Apple branded monitors with technology from 10 years ago, maybe they would go back <laughs> to making uh, Apple branded routers with technology from 10 years ago. Right. Um, well, you know, the funny thing, right, though, to your point about how often people replace these devices, I mean, I got to imagine people have like Linksys devices, you know, back from like 2006, like lying around that still uses like the, the one, two, three, four, five, six password or whatever. Yeah. The, the replacement cycles for Wi Fi are, 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 are very long, right? Like, I don't know. I've probably only replaced the router a couple times, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not like a winning product. Uh, if you're looking to generate, and so do people? Will people just bypass us and, and and use their cellular plans? Then, uh, like, I'm not quite sure actually how people manage this. I, I, I got to imagine like during the pandemic, that really motivated people to upgrade their internet and you know finally do that thing that they needed to do. Um, but does Apple sort of think that the world is going to have more Wi-Fi in the future, like Wi-Fi six or more five G and sort of terrestrial networks and that type of thing, or even satellite? going forward. And so therefore investing in a home, you know, router system actually isn't really the play. It doesn't make sense. 
there's a faction within Apple that believes satellite is the future. Mm-hmm. Other that believe 5G is the future. When they were developing the M1 chip, there was a team looking at integrating a modem into the M1 chip. And so there was a lot of discussion about, you know, including 5G on this new MacBook Air that's going to be coming out. Uh, to be clear, I'm not, I don't really think that there's going to be 5G in this new MacBook Air. It's just they looked at including cellular in it mm, and yep. new, you know, M based devices, which would make a lot of sense, right? It would be great to have a cellular option on my MacBook Pro. Uh, yeah. Will they ultimately do it one day? I think they will. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they have it in the iPad at this point. Yep. So it would, it would make a lot of sense to me. Uh, Mark, let me jump in with a, a listener question, which will be completely jumping to a different thing. But um, uh, will we have, like? How soon would we get like an M chip and an iPhone? Like, are 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 the are are Apple's chips always uh, in two directions? There's the chips for the phones and the iPads, and there's the chips for the computers. Or is it inevitably going to be one chip sooner rather than later? You know, these are just marketing names, right? Right. So, you know, they can theoretically call, you know, the chips in the phone or the Mac, whatever they want. The M1 is essentially the A14X that they would have maybe put in the iPad last, right? So in terms of the M1, what is the M1? Well, the M1 is an A14X. So the iPhone would be getting the A16 uh, this fall, right? So it's not well, going to be. You know what? Let me let me ask that in a different way. Then generations behind. Would it ever benefit them to say what you get in your phone is the same thing you get in your computer, or is that like sort of defeating the marketing purposes of being like, oh no, these computers are uh, wicked fast; they can do things that phones can't do. Like, would would there ever be a a purpose to them unifying even the marketing end of that? I mean, all the Mac chip is, the base Mac chip, the M1, the M2, the M3, or whatever, it's basically this chip in the iPhone with, I believe, three extra CPU cores and four extra GPU cores, right? All it is is extra cores. So it's the same chip. It's just a little bit of a different core count. And can they get an iPhone out the door that has battery life it has today or proper battery life after jamming in three extra CPU cores and four extra GPU cores? that aren't even necessary <laughs> on an iPhone, right? So, yeah. I mean, these are marketing decisions, and what Apple likes to do these days, they like to slap on a cool name or make cool marketing decisions to drive interest in a product, right? So, for example, you know, they could have just called the chip inside the iPad the A14X. Instead, they called it the M1 in order to make it a little bit more interesting. I was on a podcast a few weeks ago, and I thought, it was, I, I, thought I asked a question that I thought was pretty funny. Would you buy the Mac Studio if it was called the Mac Mini Pro? And uh, it gave a few people on the podcast pause. Oh, maybe I wouldn't buy it if it was called the Mac Mini Pro. I think it's interesting because it's called the Mac Studio, right? And so Apple has these marketing techniques that really, you know, drum up interest in their products. So you never know what their marketing engine is going to come up with. Um, You were talking about them missing with the um, HomePod. Uh, what's your take on, I'm going to call it a miss, you know, um, Neelay at the Verge called it a miss, uh, Marques Brownlee called it a miss. The, the, the studio display seems to have landed with a bit of a doll thud. Um, is there, do you have any theory behind why it, it sort of underperformed people's expectations? 
Apple was looking for a fairly quick development process and low engineering overhead fashion of getting a cheap monitor out the door to pair with, you know, some of these lower end Macs, the Mac Studio and such, right? And the quickest way to do it was to take a panel similar to the one in the LG display from what was it, six years ago now, and put an Apple casing around it. So I think it was just an engineering time thing. I think that monitor was in development for under two years. Not a long time in terms of Apple's development cycles for their devices. So they also want to make their 50% margin on it, and that's why you see that uh, $1,600 price point, right? I think the the high-end display, the the new 7K, is going to be uh, quite interesting, what, what, what do you think is going to be interesting about it relative to what's out there in terms of the Pro XDR? It's going to be the same thing, except it'll be, you know, 1K more. <laughs> and more <laughs> expensive. $2,000 more. Yeah. Who knows, right? But they'll put the uh, the iPhone chip there, too. You know, it's basically an iPad jammed into a monitor. So why did they not the actually put, like, an A13 in the XDR? Why did they not put an A13 in the XDR? Well, I believe the XDR didn't come out until like a month after the A13 actually came out. Hmm. Maybe the A12 wasn't powerful enough. Hmm. On the other hand, at that, that point, I don't think Apple offered any features that necessarily needed an iPhone chip. Don't forget the XDR oddly has no webcam. True. Right? I I, I so, struggle with this every day. Yes. I, I don't I'm, I'm know aware. if it has I don't know does it have speakers? No. So there's no reason to have an A chip in there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There you go. What a joke. <laughs> I mean, a very I, expensive I'll joke. I'll never forget when <laughs> that display, they tried to, to frame it as a good deal by comparing it to some of the displays that they have in Hollywood. I think mm-hmm. those are $40,000. They tried to compare it. It's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison, but that's what <laughs> like to do. Same with the HomePod. When they announced the right. HomePod in 2017, mm-hmm. they said, okay, a Sonos costs... $200. An Amazon Echo costs $200. The HomePod does both. So what should we charge? Should we charge the $400 combined? No. We're going to charge $350, right? Mm-hmm. So they have all these... Apple's a marketing-driven company, right? They are. And so that's, that's why you see some of these things a certain way. Now, I don't want to downplay their success. They are making tons of money. And they I are. think that their job as a company, their job as a company with millions of shareholders and 165,000 employees is to make as much money as possible. And so they're doing exactly what they need to do. And, you know, not that I would, not that I'm the CEO of Apple, but like, I don't think they're making any decisions differently than what you or I would make. They're doing what they have to do to be the best business they can be. Cause at the end of the day, they like to stay there and, you know, environmental, you know, they like to talk about the environment and this and that, but at the end of the day, they're a, they're a business. This is America, capitalism, and uh, they're doing what they need to do. And there's nothing like wrong pie. with that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mark, uh, let, let's end uh, our time with you by, um, you know, listeners of the show know that one of my frustrations is, is I can never figure out if the Apple car is on the verge of coming, is dead, is on the verge of dying, is on the verge of, you know. So if if you had to uh, make a bet, uh, let's not say when we'll see an Apple car, you know, on the streets. When would, when would they announce an Apple car if you believe that they're going to even announce one? 
Here's what I'll say. I would bet we see an Apple car this decade, right? I mean, I've got, <laughs> got eight years. We got eight years, right? yeah. Okay. But, yeah, I'm fairly certain they'll get it figured out. The amazing part to me is that how they've basically started the AR VR project and mm-hmm. the Apple car project. They basically started both of those projects around the same time. Okay, we are on the cusp of the VR device being announced and going. So you're saying that's going to be announced within 18 months? No, within a year. Okay, might be might be end of this year. The the, the AR VR project. I should be clear. Yes, go on. Yeah, yeah, within a year or so, Uh, max maximum. Right. Okay, that fine. You've seen no turnover in that division. You've seen the leadership team of that division. You've seen the head of that team in that division. All 100% the same. Okay, not 100% the same. Okay, at least 90% the same as it was, you know, in 2014, 2015 when the project kicked off. The Apple Car project, you've seen three or four rounds of layoffs. You've seen the head of the project replaced three mm-hmm. or four times. Yep. You see the entire management team being reshuffled multiple times. Just an end to end disaster on that project. So the difference is so, so huge between those two projects, right? But you know, Apple has so much money. I still can't bet against them on the car. I think they're going to do it. I think they have to do it. There's just so much off the shelf that goes into a car, yeah. right? It doesn't seem like Tesla did it. Yep. If Tesla could do it, Apple could do it. By the way, Tim Cook has done an amazing job as CEO. Apple has been incredibly managed uh, since the day he took over mm-hmm. 11 years ago now. Mm-hmm. If true... That Apple was able to buy Tesla for $60 billion, uh, you know, before mm. the Model 3 came out or around the Model 3 launch. Mm. If that's true, I think that is one of the big, that, that is a very big mistake. If they, if it is indeed true that Tim Cook basically, you know, ignored that possibility or felt that, you know, Apple could, could do that better. You know, I'm sure Apple has spent that amount trying to develop the Apple. Totally. Right? Yeah, definitely. So. Sure. Imagine how different history oh, would be yeah. if Apple pulled off that acquisition, right? Tesla would have been a perfect fit under Apple. Apple's operational expertise, Apple's experience in battery development, software development, hardware development, mixing the minds between mm. Tesla and Apple, uh, I think would have been a tremendous would have been tremendous for both companies except that like the products would cost three times as much and you'd have a shitty display inside the tesla so mm, oh that's know. funny yeah <laughs> I mean, who knows uh apple never going to be able to afford te- i mean technically speaking afford tesla sure mm. will they ever be able to feasibly buy the company not a chance i do think they have a competitor at some point but they're going to be so behind by the time apple comes out of comes out with a car you're going to see you know mercedes audi you name it already on Rivian or some of these newer ones, right? You're going to see all these new generations of EVs out there. And how is Apple going to, to stack up? And, you know, my hope is that Apple doesn't just rush out with a car because they need a car and do something, you know, half-assed, you know, I want to see something I've never seen before. And I think in your opinion, what, 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 what would that be? What's your, what's your dream Apple car? Well, I think the idea of them releasing a car with no steering wheel and it being able to put a baby in the back seat and having it arrive reliably. The, the true uh, self driving. The true self driving. They have like steering wheel gate, though. You know, everyone would complain whenever they sit in the it's, car. It's too much of a risk. I don't see them doing it, but that would be the dream. Um, something I could lay back and relax hmm. on the way from the office, right? 
Uh, do I think that'll ultimately happen on the first gen? No, I don't. But I think they're preparing for that world. And a lot of the internal concepts and prototypes and designs they have in the car are to not include a steering wheel. And they have some ambitious goals. Try to get a car out by 2025. You know, do I think they're going to hit that goal? Absolutely not. But I guess it's good to have dreams, right? Um, I am optimistic they'll eventually get it done. I just hope they, they take their time with it and do it well. I can't imagine that Johnny Ive is involved in that project. I mean, that guy loves cars. He's not. I mean, remember when they said that he left? Yeah. And he stay involved with Apple projects and stuff? Yeah. I don't actually think he's involved with, with anything going on there at this point. I think he's like basically 100% out of the picture. Hmm. Um, I don't think it was really even ever true that he has some partnership with them or that Apple's, you know, maybe a one-off here and there that we haven't seen or heard about in the future. Maybe something, but they probably doing good for the market, right? For continuity. So people like, yeah, them, you know. they're doing the good for the stock market. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's probably the only reason they said it, you know, yeah. Johnny Ive was such a central figure in the company, but you know, Apple showed us that it is way more than Steve jobs. It could, if it could be mm-hmm. way more than Steve jobs, it could be way more than Johnny Ive or any one person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, Johnny Ive left three years ago, and you've seen things like this new Mac Pro. Uh, you've seen the iPhone 12. You've seen everything it. got good again. <laughs> I know. Everything got good again, right? And <laughs> like, really yes. thing. Apple has moved away from the old sentiment that you can fit every product they make onto the table. And they've mm-hmm. moved into sort of world of doing everything they need to do to be successful and doing as much as they can, walking and chewing gum at the same time as they say. And so I think Apple today is a much stronger company than it was three years ago, five years ago, or even, you know, Steve Jobs in some respects, right? You can't replace Steve Jobs' marketing mind and showmanship and ability to sort of come up with new ideas. But I think they are firing on all cylinders at this point. And uh, it's a joy to cover, joy to talk about. And it's a privilege to be able to have conversations like this about technology. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts 
has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO five-pocket pants. The right sort of step-up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional-looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at cutsclothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. Cutsclothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. Yeah, uh, Mark, uh, we um, uh, we thank you for your time. Uh, you're happy. Uh, you're welcome to stick around. Um, the, the topic we're going to move on to, you might have something to say about it, but uh, please uh, dip out quietly if you'd like to. Um, what I wanted to move on to, Chris, uh, is the other big news of the day, which is the sort of the, <laughs> the big hack. Yes. Um, and the uh, allegedly we've got uh, you know sixteen year olds in Britain and Brazil behind this hack. But the thing, the angle that I wanted to to poke at a bit is the idea that the way that this hack happened was that they were going after bribing um, Fang engineers, and and this you know this is something that when I've asked people about this in the past. Uh, people have been like, yeah, we can't really talk about that or don't talk about that or whatever. But, um, you know, so aside from, you know, the, the, the classic ways that um, hackers could get into anybody's stuff is uh, you trick me with an email, you, you social engineering, or you, I, I click yeah. on a bad link. But this is straight up... Social we'll engineering. You, well, no, they're... Allegedly, hmm. um, they were offering people like twenty thousand dollars a week if you work at this company, that company, that company. If you can get us in, and yeah. the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because when I brought brought this up in the past, and people have said, "Don't talk about." This. It's been huh. clear to me for five to ten years that the most powerful places anywhere in the world are at big companies like this, mm-hmm. so that. Um, if if I were North Korea or I were China or I were Russia and I wanted to shut America down, I would have spent the last decade, you know, having sleeper cells in Google, in Apple, and wherever. And and the the reason that people won't talk to me about this is they sort of wink and nod and say, yes, we're aware. That that's a possibility. We're aware that that is, you know, a vector of concern. Um, the thing that occurred to me about this lapsus thing is that this is maybe the first time that we're seeing this play out, where it's straight up. Listen, because here's, and I know I, I've gone on a lot, but here, <laughs> but it's it's like the vector is is that if you can trick people into getting into their systems, that's one thing. If you just pay people to be like, let me into that system, that's another thing, right? Um, and so I've never worked at a fan company. Mm-hmm. 
Do you have any <laughs> insight or experience about, and it was a few years ago since you've worked at a fan company. Like, That's true. Are they, is this something that, that, that is talked about when you were there? Um, yes. Um, I mean, th- there's a couple of different ways to, to take this, you know, on the one hand, there's, you know, is it possible for, you know, an employee of any company to be bribed to do something that is otherwise immoral, illegal, unethical, et cetera? Of course. Is it going to go on in tech companies? It could, you know, that's possible. Uh, I will say that uh, the fan companies, the big tech companies in particular, have a great deal of internal monitoring. Um, they have everything is logged. You know, all access requests are, you know, down to the employee, you know, device that is used to do the things. And so there is at least discoverability um, of these types of, you know, lapses. If it happens to be that someone is performing the function that they were hired to do, but they're doing it in a way that is being motivated by something else. And so it looks like all the rest of the work. I mean, I think what we're seeing is that there are a lot of contractor contractor jobs in the support function where someone has a, you know, uh, an issue with access or permission. That's a or, good point. Right. That's or, a good point. Or password resets. All of this stuff is being farmed out to third parties. So you don't have like the top engineers, at the company working because, on those types of things. But, and yet those contractors have a level of access that is quite sensitive and powerful. And so all you need a, is one of those. important distinction is that one of the problems that's always been talked about for like public service, if you work, uh, for, mm-hmm. Even the CIA, yep. you're you're not gonna make ten million dollars on stock options. You're gonna make a low six figure salary at best. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the things that the government has always been very aware of in terms of operational security is that um, they're never gonna pay people enough. So it's easy to go to somebody to spy for another country and offer them a hundred thousand dollars, and that would move the needle for them. Versus, yep. if you're a fang engineer, in theory, you can become a millionaire if you play your cards right. So the money would be more. But that's an also that's an excellent point that you made. Is that as again, this is still an early story. But this lapsus thing is it wasn't necessarily that they were bribing people at big companies as much as they were in theory allegedly uh, going after and attempting to bribe. The contractors, the third parties, and things like Look, that. Look, the other thing that's important in this is culture. And these companies are much older than they used to be, right? So if I think about the culture of Uber when I was there in 2016, or if I think about the culture of Google in 2010, or if I think, you, you know, don't, you don't want to fuck it up because your riches are still coming. Yes, there's that. And there's also just a built-in kind of level of trust and culture in that everyone there has has built this thing and is building it, right? So on the one hand, sure, you can like point to the economic outcome and, you know, you don't want to fuck that up, fuck that up. But on the other hand, like these are your colleagues. These are the people that you're working with. This is like the stuff that you're building. And there is some cohesion that comes from, you know, fighting against the darkness and, you know, not succumbing to... Uh, you know, giving up on whatever problem it is that you're trying to solve. So you get into a different state of uh, compliance isn't the word. It's more, you know, kind of um, maybe collaboration or, you know, working together camaraderie and so forth. When you get to, you know, orders of magnitude of scale of people, 
that are no longer really bought into that original culture or feeling part of that, you know, core tribe. You know, you get to 100,000 people, 200,000 people, you know, or uh, Okta has what, more like 20,000? I don't know how many people they have, 5,000? Yeah, something, something Some like that, yeah. number. It doesn't really even matter. It's, it's that a lot of, I'm sure a lot of Okta's uh, processes are handled by third parties. And those third parties have very little connection to the core culture, very little, you know, incentives, except obviously having the job and keeping the job. Um you know, to perform the task and the duty that they're doing, they probably don't see management or have a real connection to, you know, the brand, to the core and all the things that bring, you know, the shiny trappings of the work. And that leads to, I think, real vulnerabilities. And those are vulnerabilities that really can't be coded away. So I think that's an important thing to recognize as these companies are becoming much more mature, much larger, you know, there are grievances that people have against these companies, you know, real and imagined. And that, you know, puts a, a target on their back. And in this case of, of lapsus, you know, you've got supposedly, you know, 16 year old kids that are highly motivated to figure this stuff out. They probably have cryptocurrency. So they have a lot of money that's, you know, not meaningful to them, but it's large sums and they can deploy it to do something like the thing that was fascinating um, when listening to the story about the lapses thing, I guess maybe one of the hackers was doxxed and, you know, photos of his home and, you know, his mother, you know, were put out there on the internet or something is that these 16 year old kids are sort of jockeying to be the most elite programmer um, and are completely like, they see these big companies as like institutions that they can just rail against and, you know, kind of destroy, like it doesn't bother them. Like they're not in that world. I don't know. I think back to like, you know, kind of juvenile delinquent I was, and you know, I had the same idea about institutions that were just there and that were annoying because they were like established. So it's a different type of threat actor because they will use whatever type of social machinery they can. And it has nothing to do with perimeter defenses or other types of digital defenses or encryption or those types of, you know, conventional kind of security. So it is, it is very scary. Uh, you want to just? I'm gonna. I'm gonna flip to the next one because yeah. this is one that I've wanted to ask you about. Um, does that answer your question? It does. Less? Okay. It does. It does. It does. It's basically. Well, kids are always going to be kids. The 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 teenage hackers have always been there. Uh, I'm I'm just more curious about the the angle of. Well, you know the one thing that enough, I, I guess is enough. If 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 it's it's the, the whole idea of you rob a bank because that's where the money is. So yeah. because these companies are so powerful now and it like it's it's like are we at a point where it's like you can't do uh security well enough because someone's going to be willing to be like I'll give you 50 million dollars if you get me the source code for the next iPhone or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you know? the, the, the reason why I guess I'm speaking to this in this way is because my own personal experience, having my SIM card uh, hacked right, by an right. AT&T, AT&T employee so that some script kitty on the internet could steal my Instagram username and then sell it, you know, as a trophy on the OG users, like, forum, you know? So the fact that they went through that level of... I don't know, effort to some degree to like get someone at a low level AT&T store to like reset the password and then send it off to this other person. I mean, just shows you how vulnerable these, these systems are because ultimately they're touching people who want the problem solved. Right. So if like, I can't get into my Apple ID because I forgot my password or whatever, you know, and I go to the Apple store. Well, what are the processes that Apple has in place to make sure that someone who is, you know, not you doesn't do the same path that you would do to get access to the account that you want access to. You know what I mean? Like 
so it's it's very very difficult and when people get frustrated because they have to you know recite their you know mother's maiden name backwards and you know their grandfather's birth date or something like that to like you know get access to a account or just get service and they have to do it to every new person uh on the service line that you've called like these are the reasons why it's because the people who are motivated have far more time, energy, and effort, and the payoff is so much bigger than you know you lowly person who forgot your password. All right, I am I am jumping to the next one because I feel like you, you might be closer to this one. Um, something that occurred to me with the and also by the way, mm. uh, this might raise a bunch of hands in the room too. Okay. Something that occurred to me talking about all the Yuga Lab stuff and ApeCoin. Um, so uh, to, to to reiterate, if if people don't remember from earlier in the week, like um, uh, basically, uh, Yuga Labs bought up uh, the biggest IP in uh, NFT land, uh, three of the biggest brands, uh, raised um, at a four billion dollar valuation. Which, funny enough, I forgot to say this on the show. Reminds me of a year ago they. Uh, uh, Clubhouse raised at a four billion dollar valuation for <laughs> but um, okay. But what this made me think of, and I I didn't have a way to, I had no way to make a point about this on the show. Is it reminds me of Hollywood? What do people in NFT land number one think about a consolidation where there's a like I did say a, a eight hundred pound gorilla yep. that is apparently <laughs> Yuga Labs in the space, yep. um, but then. What they seem to want to do, it's almost like, you know, early Hollywood. I was a a film major, so I know the history of early Hollywood. And there was a thousand studios, and then they all consolidated into, you know, the big five or whatever. Let's start with this. What do people think of Yuga Labs consolidating the biggest brands? Okay. So I think what you're kind of ultimately getting to or asking about, you know, is what is the NFT marketplace going to look like? What is it going to emerge into? Is it going to be more tech or is it going to be more media, IP, um, you know? Yes. You just put your finger on what I couldn't elucidate. Yeah. yeah. It, it feels like media to me. It, it is. And I think yeah. that's, it's, it's, it's a really, and I suppose actually to turn it back to you, like it's a, it's an astute sense, right. That you have which is asking the question, like, what is this? What are NFTs? And so actually, oh, okay, let's unpack this. Cause I think, I think we're getting somewhere. The idea. So what I was first going to say was that there just aren't that many people who are going to buy own and really care that much about NFTs. Right. I don't know if we've yes, tapped out. Let, let, let me interrupt. Okay. And when I did that article this week, they pointed out that there's only 40,000 people yeah. apparently in the entire NFT ecosystem, or was that only, uh, on, um, uh, on those uh, Yuga yeah. Lab type things, it, yeah, it almost yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. But let's let's go with that right. point because that is adjacent to the point that I'm about to make. Which is, on the one hand, there's only a small number of people who you know one can buy and afford these things, trade these things, care about these things, showing up for these things. You know, we're not seeing. Uh, you know, 10 million or hundred million or 500 million people who are super stoked about their NFTs. And, you know, we've created this amazing decentralized place where everyone has a little bit of equity of this new world that we've created in Kumbaya, et cetera. Instead you have, you know, maybe it's 40,000 people. It's probably some percentage smaller of that, that are owners of this IP and can be all rounded up together and are maybe, you know, the bastions of kind of a new Hollywood where there's a different type of um, entertainment 
that will be created that's based on games and the metaverse. And you want that consolidation so that you can actually build the interrupt that, you know, Zuckerberg has, you know, claimed should exist in the metaverse. So instead of having, you know, hundreds of thousands or, you know, millions of owners of these things, you have a small can number. I, can I take the, the Hollywood analogy one step further? Sure. Um, for a hundred years, people go out to Hollywood, a certain percentage of people to make it rich. And we've all understood that it's vanishingly small, right? The amount of people that are actually successful at it. I feel like there's like 50 Uh, actors and actresses that you see over and over in all the movies. Well, it's not only that. I mean, the, again, I went to school with these people. I know people that went out to Hollywood and Listen, I'm not friends with anybody whose name you would know, but mm. that's my point is that I must have known from college 30 people that went out to Hollywood to make their fortune. Um, so again, this kind of ties into the idea of some of what the critics of the NFT space say, which is it's exclusionary, mm-hmm. it's elitist, mm-hmm. and but but what if that is the natural market that sort of this is going towards where it is an IP based and an exclusive based sort of market, which, which can be a big market. I mean, that's totally possible. I just think that like we're at a period where everything is on an accelerated timetable. And so, you know, if it took, you know, 50 or 60 years for, you know, the Hollywood intelligentsia to essentially like sort of establish themselves in culture, you know, in in the studios and in business deals and arrangements, that seems to be happening now within, you know, three to four years. And part of it is because we already have the model. You know, I was thinking about this last night. And, you know, if you think about what's going on with finance and fintech and uh, crypto currencies and things like that. If you were to go back to the last time there was sort of a massive capitalist expansion, you know, with the rubber barons, and you think about the the railroads, and you think about the steel, you think about all these sort of accoutrements that came in after that, you know, in the advent of the 60s with the Mad Men and the advertising era, that era was all about kind of describing new ways to apply these industrial products that had been brought into market, brought to scale, you know, where the costs were reduced, and now you could build products for, for consumers with this. We've accelerated that whole process, which probably took a hundred years within, you know, 10, 15 years with the internet. And so you have these raw materials well, and, now. And crypto, forget the internet. Crypto okay. is three X the speed of internet time, you know, well, it, it, which is, which is to my point, right? So I wouldn't even say that crypto is even doing that much different from, you know, what the previous era of the internet was doing. It is introducing some new concepts, some new primitives, but most of the things that seem to be being built are kind of rebuilding the recent past histories, infrastructure and experiences and products, just using some new technologies and techniques. So it's not even that inventive. It's not even that new, you know, it's, it is applying new technologies to enable these things and it's, you know, creating some new incentive structures. But a lot of this is actually very familiar rather than inventing whole cloth, new types of interactions or concepts, right? Like the follow button or the like button were actually new gestures in the Rubicon of human expression that were necessary in a digital space because you had to capture a kind of sentiment that was typically expressed through implicit signals in real life. You know, you like something cool. You kind of like express affection for it, but it's not this, you know, row in a database that says Chris does like, or does not like that thing. Or, you know, following someone is something that you'd sort of like watch in the newspapers and you'd see updates, but it was like really about the publishers deciding who to publish it about. But 
Now you can literally follow, you know, sort of a person, which is an identity on some platform where there's content constantly being renewed. Anyways, these things have sped up. So to your point, this consolidation that seems to be happening is hoovering up all the most valuable IP, you know, kind of real estate in the NFT space in order that there is an opportunity to build the next Marvel or DC universe. And that seems to be like where the game is going to go. And the idea, although, you know, Andreessen talks, Andreessen Horowitz and those folks talks a lot about decentralization. I don't really see how that's true. That like that either that's what they want or that's what's going to come of this because there's a very small number of people in the world who will actually be able to build this stuff. That leads me into a point that I wanted to make. This is this is almost like Brian's uh, place to to <laughs> make great. points that he he can't uh, wedge into the show. Sure, I'm a, I'm gonna I'm gonna point out something that is obvious to certain people, and if it's obvious to you, I apologize. Um, but you're, you're mentioning Andreessen and you know mm-hmm. the the going whole hog on on Web three and crypto and things like that. Um, and I've mentioned, I know I've mentioned on the show before that one of, I, I've heard this, one of the things that was a catalyzing moment in Silicon Valley was the Solana moment, uh, which Andreessen was a, uh, an investor in mm-hmm. and Solana at, at its height, I think was approaching like a 60 or $80 billion market. Mm-hmm. Here's something that you, if you don't know it, you might be interested to learn <laughs> because I'm about to invest in a company um, uh, next month that it's going to be my first token investment. Oh, and here's, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. If you're a VC and you invest in a company, you have to wait for a, a liquidity moment. And that means, you know, you invest in a company at a $10 million valuation and someone buys it for a hundred million dollars or it becomes a unicorn and someone takes it out at a billion dollar valuation or it goes public at a $4 billion valuation. So when you invest as a venture capital firm, Mm -hmm. you don't, it's all paper wealth. It's all on, it's all in theory until you get that liquidity. Mm -hmm. And, but when you can invest in a token, the token trades, uh, 24-7. Yep. So when Andreessen and whoever else, I don't mean to pick on Andreessen, mm-hmm. uh, that invested in Solana, and Solana went up to, again, I can't remember, it was it, it was above $50 billion market cap, I believe. I think I see so, where, you're, where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. if they got in, in the, whoever got in at the original Solana token sale, Let's even say that they got in at a $300 million valuation. Mm-hmm. The minute it was a $30 billion, like they don't have to wait for a liquidity mm-hmm. event. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just going to point out the fact that one of the very many reasons, and, and one of the reasons that everyone loves crypto and Web3 now is that there's a lot of energy behind it. There's a lot of good ideas behind it. But you have to understand if you're a VC, you don't have to wait 10 years for your liquidity event. You can invest in a company you can and, and buy their tokens. And the, the week after that airdrop happens, the week after that token comes out, if it has a $10 billion market cap, you can sell. Yeah. Your liquidity event is instantaneous. And... Uh, you know, by doing the research that I've had to do to invest in this token sale, 
like that was like, oh, well, shit. <laughs> that <laughs> that makes a lot of things make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> so if you were not aware of that, I am uh, cluing folks into that little nugget about why uh, a lot of VCs love Web3 and crypto, right? It is true. And it is interesting to sort of like see this quasi winter that we seem to be in. It's sort of hard to maybe explain exactly, you know, why we're here, you know, whether it's things going on in the world or whether it's specifically that, that, you know, when a bunch of people decided that they wanted their, you know, liquidity to be good, you know, they, they pulled out, they sold a bunch of stuff. The NFTs are all off from where they were like a, you know, six months ago. Um, and now they've taken, you know, their Benjamins and now they're, you know, just hoarding them, holding, doing whatever it is. Um, I do think that, and I, you know, you don't have to share obviously anything about this deal that you're looking into, but there are cases where at least I think savvy and smart folks who are working with tokens. Can I, can I give you the math? Let, let me give you the math on this. Okay. All wait, right. wait, let, let, me, let me finish my point and then give me the math. Oh yeah. Finish your point. I'll yeah. give you the math and, and you'll, you'll see why this is crazy. Okay. Well, my, my point largely is just that you can actually build into tokenomics and to smart contracts and to other ways of investing that actually have similar types of mechanics as uh, equity or equity grants in companies. So essentially you could be a VC, put your money in, but then there's actually either a contract like an agreement, you know, or there's something in a smart contract that says that you can't pull out or sell some share of your tokens, you know, out of these wallets for some period of time. So that is a way to actually prevent that type of, you know, drop it in, you know, pump and then leave uh, because that's tanked a lot of projects. Yes, I mean, that, yes, that was happening yes, with yes. the ICO world often. Yes. So there is a little bit of an evolution in that world. There is, but here, here's, here's the economics. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we've talked before about how I write small checks and by small, you know, yep. forgive me for saying a uh, hundred thousand dollar check. So let's say I write a hundred thousand dollar check to a company at a 10 million with an M dollar valuation. Yep. If it becomes a unicorn, which is a $1 billion valuation, right? Um, so that means my $100,000 is worth $10 million with an M. Except for the fact that it really isn't, because to get there, there's multiple rounds, and so my investment is diluted. Yeah. Um, uh, which, if you don't understand that, I'm sorry about that. that math. <laughs> but, but also, I would have to wait, e- even if it becomes... A unicorn. That doesn't mean that I can sell because there's not a liquidity event. So no one's Apple hasn't come in and bought it. Uh, they haven't had an IPO or whatever. So I'm still waiting. I'm still. It's all on paper. Now, if I do the same investment in a token at a at a at a ten million dollar uh, cap, let's say, and when the the coin starts trading. And I get lucky, and then all of a sudden, a month from now, that coin has a billion dollar valuation, which isn't crazy in crypto land, and and you know it can go up and go down. But I can I can immediately, even if I don't sell the whole ten million dollars, I could take three million off the table. And number two, there's no dilution. Mm. So think of those two things in combined. Where number one. I don't have to wait. There's no, like, I I have immediate liquidity. And in theory, there's no dilution. Now, again, not every project is going to be a winner, not every, but but that's the thing that has blown my mind and made me realize why all the money is, is flooding into. And I'm not, again, I'm not being cynical about it in the sense that, oh, they're just flooding in because it's easy money. 
But I am saying that it's easier money <laughs> than waiting <laughs> 10 years for an IPO. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I use this, and you should too. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee, so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Yeah, I wonder how this is going to turn out, you know, um, from a reputation perspective, you know, from a market dynamics perspective, if there's just going to be, you know, more movement, right? Because the thing that your narrative doesn't completely take into consideration. You know, one is, will the rest of the market start to behave in in a similar way? And once you start doing that, you know, people who invest need to keep making more money. And if, you know, you do it a couple of times and then other people figure it out, you're eventually not going to be able to get your returns for your LPs because the market has uh, adjusted uh, or, or adopted these. I hope you're not talking to a historian. <laughs> tell Pretend me, that tell I me, what are, what are the lessons from uh, the dot com era? Listen, uh, if you can uh, if you can invest in that company and get it IPO'd in six months, All right, fair, and, fair, you know, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it's you know, so so there's a window, and then maybe you know, winter will definitely come, is what you're saying. Uh, again, <laughs> and you're I still believe- going to make this investment. Oh, oh, for sure. I actually believe I believe in this idea entirely, and wow. and, and and it's a funny thing because um, if I could have invested in a in a normal equity round, 
I would have done that, right? Yeah. But they want to do the token run. Yeah. And so I'm like, all right. Are they putting any restrictions on on the token? I can't go into any of that. Okay. But yes, for any of these things, there are things like that. So yes. Okay. Well, but I mean, that, that sort of speaks to my point, right? It's not just a simple thing where you put your money in and overnight yeah, but, it's but, a 10x. Okay, but, you know, again, but, but, but again, I put my money in, yeah. the token goes live and starts to trade. And then if I get it right, I could get it right immediately. I understand. Yeah. And, and I could, and I could cash out immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is a different thing <laughs> than, than, than waiting for a company. Well, so, to what go would the founder, you know, th- these these folks that you want to invest in, if you do that thing, what do you think their impression would be? Would they would they appreciate that? I would say this because there's um, a lot of Web three companies. You know, there are equity investors and there are token investors, and oftentimes there are people on both sides. And for example. Uh, like for um, Yuga Labs, you know, um, I know that Andreessen and whoever else is in on this round is in on the token, mm-hmm. uh, in on the ApeCoin, mm-hmm. but they also are in on the equity round as well. What I'm not clear about, and, you know, this is me admitting that I'm a naive um, <laughs> venture capitalist, is... Um, why you would play both sides of that fence. There has to be reasons that you would do that. Uh, but maybe it's sort of like hedging because again, uh, maybe if you get half of your position in a token and half of your position in equity, and then you immediately, if, if the, if the token, uh, you know, uh, goes to the moon, you, you, you sell out of the token, but you still got the equity. So you can ride the company if you believe in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really feel like I'm I'm revealing too much of my um, naivete in this, so I'm I'm going to stop now and and ask you to um, give us one more topic and then and then let's close for yeah, the night. Totally. Um, you know, the one thing that I've been thinking about, you know, I I feel like I'm sort of going through this process right now, which is very similar to what happened at the beginning of the the pandemic, where. I just became kind of a news junkie around a specific story. And, you know, it's happening now around the war in Ukraine. And one of the the things that has come up, and you had a story about this, and there was some coverage of it recently. Um, and I, I was listening to The Daily today, and there was some really great coverage, um, or at least, you know, sort of a narrative about how similar aspects of the current war and Putin's approach um, is similar to the conflict in um, Chechnya. Um, I believe mm. this was, I don't know, the nineties or, or something. Uh, it was late nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 or it was when Putin came to power because that yes. was sort of his, his yeah. play to like, I'm the tough guy that, that solved this Precisely. Chechen war. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, you know, I would highly recommend listening to that. Um, you know, one, the, the fact that there's like a playbook and like, this is the way that the guy like, you know, does his wars and that this is actually quite consistent, um, was, you know, surprising, I guess, to hear, um, and where this sort of intersects with tech and in our world, you know, is the, the tweet that you shared the other day from Rachel per- Perloff, um, that was talking about how cyber attacks may be coming. And so with all of these sanctions, of course, that we put against Russia, um, 
Putin will want to find sort of, you know, clever, clever and interesting ways to sort of lash out, get revenge. Um, and, you know, I mean, where we started, you know, in this segment of the show talking about lapses and what's going on there, I mean, it feels like we probably are, even though I think things have gotten better in terms of our infrastructure. You know, you remember the, what was the, the pipeline that was hacked, um, in New York that cut off uh, power or whatever? Yeah. Crap. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. Let me check tech, tech meme for pipeline. Yeah. Anyways. I think that our infrastructure is safer than it was, but mm. if lapsus is Boy, able, you know, some 16 year old kid to get into Okta and then get into Microsoft services and leak most of the source code for Cortana and stuff like that, you've got to imagine that most, you know, civil federal, uh, you know, you mis- municipal governments are pretty exposed. And mm. if, as you suggest, there are these sleeper cells, which don't even need to be in the big tech companies, they could be, you know, mm. working for mm. municipal governments and they open a back door or a side door or whatever it is to infrastructure. There's a lot of crazy things that could happen. And so I don't know where that leads. I don't know where that goes, but, you know, we started sort of talking about, you know, the big tech kind of vulnerability to some of these hacks. And I'm a little bit more worried about a state actor lashing out you know, in retribution for these sanctions in ways that we can't really, you know, anticipate um, in the underbelly of, you know, civilization. Well, look, man, I, um, <laughs> I, 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 I almost don't want to, I, I almost don't want to talk about this because I, mm. I feel like we'll jinx it, I in, jinx it. in a, in a uh, really bad way, but it know, is, I'm, no, go well, ahead. Well, I was going to say, so, you know, I guess to preview um, a conversation that you'll be sharing, um, did you decide tomorrow or, or on um, Saturday? Uh, say within the next 48 hours. Yeah, we, let's talk about it. So Chris and yeah. I I- interviewed a startup uh, based in Ukraine today, and we're going to put it up sometime in the next 48 hours as a bonus episode. Um, so go ahead. Yeah, and, you know, what, what Alexander had to do um, to, you know, prepare his team in Ukraine, you know, to go, um, you know, just gave me a lot of, I don't know, made me think about my own preparation and my own security and my own safety. So while on the one hand, I don't want to jinx it. And I really, you know, don't wish for any type of, you know, kind of big hack to occur. It just, it does occur to me how I'm exposed, you know, personally, how I might be vulnerable, how I may not be, um, you know, ready to live an analog life for some period of time. If that were to be the case, you know, we are very reliant upon, you know, delivery services. We have a Tesla here at home. Like, you know, if the power goes out, like that car is not going to last very long. Um, so it just, it just, well, also, uh, Idiots like us can't do podcasts and, and throw ads against them and make a living. You also, know, so. also true. The, the creator economy obviously is dependent on this digital infrastructure. Yes. But I, you know, I, like hacking is different than just like having, you know, the power turned off or, you know, the internet, you know, disabled or s- slowed down or something, you know? So I don't know that I have like a real, I don't know, statement, but it really made me feel for, you know, the people of Ukraine and what may happen, um, you know, obviously both physically in terms of their security, but then also digitally in terms of our digital lives and how much we do rely on these systems and, you know, how little prepared and how much ignorance there is. Yeah, but okay, all right. I'm, I'm going to stop you because yeah, you yeah. Are, you're chasing you're it. I mean, that's the thing is like... <laughs> Let's hope not. I've I've talked on the show about you know uh, industrial espionage and how that's like. I was a Boy Scout. I just want to be somewhat prepared, more prepared than I feel right now. Yeah. Look, man, if there's there's those million chemical plants in Jersey on the other side. Yeah, well, I live in you know the Bay Area. You know, there. I I literally I I follow a. 
earthquake. Okay, bot. there's that. There's that. Or you know? um, all of a sudden, no one can get money out of ATMs. All of a sudden, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of the gas pumps in the country don't function, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, right. are, are you I, telling I, me that I just should not be paranoid? I, no. <laughs> what I'm worried, in fact, what I'm telling you is what I'm worried about is that it hasn't happened. I see. So you are worried. Oh fuck! <laughs> I a hundred percent believe. Like, because what was the what was the big hack? The Solar Winds hack, yeah, which, yeah, exactly. we, which yep. the the yep. government attributed to the Russians. Yep. Which, in theory, the whole point of that is, yeah. is that there were all these back doors. They were in there for eighteen yeah. months yeah, or a long time years. So, in theory, the whole point of that hack is, you just again sleeper cells. You just wait. You just wait till you need to use it. Right. So, I mean, look, (laughs) let let, let me, okay. I I, I don't want to jinx that, but you know what, what I would like to do seeing as how that this episode will either, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll do this episode uh, after we release the, the Ukraine interview episode. I'm just curious your take on, uh, you know, personally, uh, you and I have talked about this a lot offline. Um, What we wanted to do was capture, Mm. How many how many people listening to us right now work at startups and we wanted to be like, you know, this startup that we talked to is a tech company just like yours. Yeah. And imagine that you woke up one day and um bombs are falling. Yeah. And what do you do? Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we, you know, tried to get out of the way and, and let the story be told. But I'm just just curious on personally uh what, what you thought of um the, the conversation we had this morning, you know, um, it just gave me a sense for, you know, the, the, the bravery of, you know, many people who are, you know, leaders of a group of people. And, you know, for the most part, you're a leader of a product team or, you know, building a business or making deals or things like that. And you don't really think about some of these bigger issues, you know, coming to the fore. And then suddenly you're, you're challenged. And you're tested and the world that you knew no longer exists and the way in which you relate to your team and connect and all those things goes away. Um, hearing that, I guess I just, you know, took stock of, you know, myself, like how would I respond? Would I be, you know, cool? Like, and, or would I freak the fuck out? You know, would I run and hide? Would I, you know, be able to handle it? And so, um, you know, the fact that we got that email after we finished recording, um, you know, from the woman that actually set up the call and she's like, well, I'm sorry, I couldn't make the call. I was in, you know, a bomb shelter because there was, the shelling was going on, you know, it, it makes it real in a way that a lot of the coverage that I've, you know, been consuming didn't. And I knew it was real. And mm-hmm. I know people, you know, I have people on my team who, who are in Russia, um, you know, and who have also had to flee and leave Russia um, as a result of this. But to try to imagine teams working under that type of duress and that type of stress um, and to keep carrying on. I mean, I think the thing that he said that was so powerful and, and sort of, I don't know, stuck in my head a little bit was that people in these moments do need things to work on. They need to like, not just like distract themselves to like distract themselves, but like to have a purpose to keep getting up every day while things around you are turning to shit. And that just like reminded me how important it is for us to, you know, take care of one another and to check in on one another and just, you know, ask how people are doing. And so it's, it's certainly something that I've been doing a lot more of. Um, I mean, certainly since the pandemic, but, um, 
you know, whatever that, that linear ticket is or that Jira ticket or whatever else, like it can, it can wait, you know, to make sure that the person on the other end is, is okay. Um, and this is just a very different moment, I think for us and the way that we're connected to it, um, is, um, I don't know. It, it gave me a lot of pause. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to acknowledge something, which is the reason that I wanted to do that. Uh, I, I twice in my startup career have hired teams from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I have done stories like, Oh, you know, by the way, there's a bunch of devs and tech workers in Ukraine. Like I, I knew that personally. And Mm -hmm. this is, this is a, a bit stepping into politics. So forgive me. But when you see people say, you know, and, and people have come down on people for this and like, oh, well, but this is happening in a European company or country. This is happening to people that look like us. Obviously, there's privilege yep. and racism yep. in, in making that comment versus, mm-hmm. you know, other countries that, are, that have had wars. But one of the reasons I wanted to do it is that I do know that this is Ukraine is a country that at least for the last 20 years, I've personally known has a tech um, economy, um, tech workers, they're plugged in to the larger tech ecosystem. And so I did want to just, you know, take a look at what would happen if your startup was that where, you know, and, and people hopefully will have heard this by now where you wake up one day and um, you have to get your go bag and go. Um, yep. and so, uh, and then does your company even continue? Right. Um, are, are your people safe? Some people are safe. Some people are in, um, cities that are besieged and whatever. I, I, I did think that it was important and I hope people take it in the spirit, uh, looking through the lens of, um, imagine that was my company. Imagine that was me. That was yeah. it. So, that was um, it. Yeah. That's it. Um, well, you know, I will, um, this is not meant to be like self-promotional at all. Um, but I would like to at least point to something that my company is doing, um, around raising money for this. Um, we have just, um, put together a donation campaign for the, essentially the first responders, um, in, in the Ukraine. And, um, a friend of mine put this together together. Um, he's been working on it really hard and, I guess I want to put that out there. We'll put it in the show notes and I'll pin the tweet here. But um, anyways, on that, I suppose I'm ready to close. How about you? Uh, yes. Uh, remind me, um, ping me uh, after we sign off. So I'll put that in the show notes for the episode as well. Cool. Um, thank you, everybody. Um, and thank you, Chris. Actually, thank you, Chris, for uh, jumping on that call with me uh, this morning. Because oh, yeah. I know you had to break into your workday to do it. Um, and um, thank thank you, Mark Gurman, for uh, doing Apple stuff with us. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And, uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Thanks, everybody. This has been another recording of the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience. Hopefully, we will be back here next Thursday for more. Ciao. Later.